Hey all you girls, boys, and non-binaries out there. This is part two of a special two-part series on my personal faith journey. Usually on the show, we deal with issues of race and pop culture in a very comical way as my two co-hosts play the arbiters and judges of black culture. This episode is a tad more serious than normal, but it's such a core part of my journey, I think it's one of the most important I'll make. And if this topic of faith deconstruction is particularly of interest to you, also check out episode five, our Christmas episode, Happy Birthday, White Jesus. All right, on with the show. You are listening to the Ebony Covering Black America Podcast Network, presented by Walmart. Previously on this season of Dungeons and Durags, it all started November 8th, 2016. I am officially running for President of the United States. Here was this blatantly racist son of a bitch being embraced by the evangelical church in America like he was the new pope. What the frack? White Jesus killed my people, then enslaved us. Then they turned around and said that he's our savior. And to make matters worse, there were people that I knew, people who were Christian, who were embracing this man. And yes, all these people were white. But the doubt I'm feeling isn't because of the rampant commercialism. I think Linus got it wrong. I'm not sure anymore that that's the real meaning of Christmas. There is no acknowledgement about Jesus in Christmas. It's all about the Christmas tree and the lights and the decorations. Some people have a, are very religious, but don't have any relationship with the right. person they claim they believe. They are not Christ-like, they're church-like. We got a lot of churchians <laughs> and not a lot of Christians. It's probably an eternal frustration with you too, the fact that like loudest Christians among us are the least Christ-like and have right. zero doubt in their mind that they're right. My faith was never tied to Trump, so it never affected how I felt. Welcome to Dungeons and Durags, the podcast, one black nerd's epic quest of self-discovery, racial identity, and crisis of faith. Episode 14, Oh Jesus, where art thou? I started my video career as most aspiring filmmakers do, shooting weddings. And I was quite good at it if I do say so myself. When I started, wedding video was still largely seen as boring, emotional indulgences that only the couple and close family and friends could really enjoy. But there was a small subset of wedding filmmakers who endeavored to create beautiful cinematic masterpieces. I was one such wedding filmmaker. I saw my art as a way to bring beauty and glory to something that the Bible revered. I mean, the relationship between Jesus and the church is described biblically as a marriage, where Christ is the bridegroom and the church his bride. My passion for love and marriage could clearly be seen in my work. I was a hopelessly romantic, movie-loving, creative filmmaker who felt like God gave me the gift of telling stories to help build strong marriage foundations. In a way, it was kind of like a ministry. And one morning, early in my business, I got an email from Tracy saying that she and her fiancé Chris were getting married that summer, loved my work, and were excited to have me capture their nuptials. And boy, oh boy, they had a budget to get my most expensive package at the time. Hot damn. So imagine my quandary when on a phone call with Tracy, I discovered that her fiance Chris was another woman. 
Lord have mercy. What had I gotten myself into? I just agreed to shoot a gay wedding. I literally panicked. Don't get me wrong. At least two or three of my best or at least very, very close friends were gay. I loved the TV shows like Will and Grace, Cry for the Straight Guy, Ellen, and the funny gay sidekicks on rom-coms. My best friend's wedding was my jam. I wasn't like those other bigoted Christians. I was one of the good ones. And as one of the good ones, I wrote to Tracy just the nicest, most diplomatic, kindest, sorry but I can't help you emails you could ever imagine. Pulling a Marsha Brady, I told Tracy that um, something suddenly came up and that I wouldn't be able to shoot her and Chris's wedding. But I gave her the names of a few other wedding videographers who I knew would do a wonderful job. I had dodged a theological bullet. God would be so proud of me. Now, I'm hoping that by the tone and sarcasm in my voice, you can tell that my feelings and mindset have done a complete 180 in the past 20 plus years. Rescinding my decision to shoot Chris and Tracy's wedding all those years ago was just one of a few decisions I made in my life that I now look back on and cringe at. Decisions that at the time I felt in my heart were so deeply right. Decisions that I felt brought glory to God. And I hoped I did it in a loving way. But as we learned from Will Smith's Oscar acceptance speech after slapping the shit out of Chris Rock, sometimes being quote unquote loving hurts. And some loving decisions I made, I think, could have hurt other people. The issues as they related to people's sexuality weren't the only kinds of decisions I made that today haunt me. There's one decision I made a little over 13 years ago that to this day remains one of the biggest regrets in my life. And it was another decision that was directly tied to my Christian faith. And that decision was, hold up, wait a minute. I'm not gonna tell you what it is. And now I'm sure my co-host Yolanda is listening to this right now and screaming at her phone and rolling her eyes. She knows the story and she wants me to tell it. And there may come a day when I will share it on the show. But you see, here's the deal. I actually wrote about it in my book, which comes out later this month. So telling you all about it now would rob you of that revelation and journey through the greater context of a bigger story. It will be like me telling you what happens at the end of Sixth Scent when you haven't had a chance to watch the movie yet. And I, I just don't want to do that to you fine people because I care about you too much. I will say this though. Between that decision and the spiritual trauma that I went through during my divorce, I have anger issues with regards to the church. So I've created a scale that measures hmm. exposure to spiritual abuse and common effects. That's Dan Koch, host and producer of one of my favorite podcasts, You Have Permission. It's a show where Dan interviews some of the smartest theologians, Christian influencers, thought leaders, and scientists and politicians on various issues as it relates to Christian epistemology and thinking. He's conducted such interviews for nearly a decade over a few different podcasts that he's started. And he grew up in a relatively conservative evangelical church. He's currently studying psychology with an emphasis on recognizing and treating spiritual abuse. So he was a perfect person to interview for this episode. I just want to read a couple things oh, yeah. that are on the screener. These are common effects of spiritual abuse. Um, this is not a full list, but right. sadness over the loss of my faith community, uh, a lack of spiritual direction or purpose, 
anger upon reflecting on negative religious experiences, personally avoiding religious activities or settings to reduce distressing feelings. So, you know, I'm not, yeah, I'm not diagnosing you or anything, but like, you know, what I heard when you said that is like, sounds like you've suffered some spiritual abuse. And I know enough of your story because we know each other personally to have some, I have some clues as to what that might've been about. Yeah. And that, you know, I think that that would be appropriate language for it. That's crazy hearing that list. It's funny because I was recording for my, for the part one of this two part series on my spiritual journey. And it occurred to me at the time that I was recording it, that I had forgotten that it was good Friday. And there was Mm. a time in my life where me and my family would have been at a church service on Good Friday and and all yeah. that. And so the fact that I even had forgotten, I was like, oh my gosh, it's Good Friday. I don't go to church or anymore, so I didn't do anything on Easter. And so I spent most of Easter actually editing the last part. For, so to me, that was my spiritual experience. One of the reasons I invited Dan on this episode is because he has been on a very similar trajectory as me in his faith journey. I know, based on things he shared on his podcast, that even though he questions the veracity of a lot of biblical tenets, he still participates in Christian activities and does indeed consider himself a Christian. He shared with me why. What makes me a Christian is that I I live my life Christianly. (laughs) It's kind of the simplest way of saying it. You know, Mm -hmm. I... I have a prayer life. Mm-hmm. It is rooted in Christian Christian prayers. Right. My my kind of core values of how I try and move through the world are rooted in mostly the Sermon on the Mount, but mm. other teachings of Jesus and and some of the rest of the New Testament and Old Testament. Um, uh, I go when I go to church, and when I take the Eucharist. Mm-hmm. I often have spiritual experiences. Mm. So it's like, I if that's not being a Christian, <laughs> mm-hmm. then I don't really know. Like, that seems like a pretty good, pretty good definition. You do Christian things and you experience what you what you think is God through them. And you identify all of that with Jesus of Nazareth. You know, I think that I mean, I think that makes me a Christian. Right. Right. If you got another word, I'm open to it. But so the common retort I would hear to something like that from other Christians would be, "Well, you sound Dan like the kind of person who believes Jesus was a good person and you want to follow his ways." But like, if you don't believe in the death, in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, then what just makes you? How do you any different from the Muslims who see Jesus as a great prophet? Right. I mean, I would say that one of the things that makes me different from a Muslim who sees Jesus as a great prophet is that I don't go to a mosque. I don't pray five times a day facing Mecca. I don't do the things that Muslims do. I do the things that Christians do. And I don't mind that they do those things. I don't feel like I can ever say for sure mm-hmm. Christianity's right and Islam is wrong. And right. Judaism is wrong and Buddhism is wrong. I don't think I have access to the kind of information or experience that would let me say that. I wish I did. It would make a lot of things a lot easier, but I don't think that I do. And then to the like, oh, is Jesus just a great man thing? I would say, look, I have more doubt about, for instance, the resurrection of Jesus Mm -hmm. than probably most Christians do. Like Mm -hmm. my personal subjective experience 
of how certain I am, I'm sure is low. It's in the fifth <laughs> or tenth, tenth percentile, maybe, or something like that. Right, right. If what you want to say is that, well, only the only people who are really Christians are people who are above the 50th percentile of certainty in Christ's resurrection or something. Okay, fine. But what's the cutoff? Because mm-hmm. I don't because anybody who has a hundred percent is kidding themselves, I think. So is it people in the 70th percentile of confidence in the resurrection mm-hmm. that should count as Christians? Like that just seems like a weird way to define it. I I think that I I feel personally, I feel confident that the early Christians had an experience of the risen Christ, which mm-hmm. led to the founding of Christianity. Mm-hmm. I think that that's pretty much indisputable historically and everything. But, you know, it just, you know what I'm saying? It's just like a weird, I, I grew up with that definition. So I mm-hmm. recognize it from your words, from your counter argument. Right. But I just think it kind of falls apart if you look at it more closely. But what does that mean to have an experience of the risen Christ if you don't believe he's risen? Well, in in some sense, I believe he was risen, and I don't know in what sense he was risen, put hmm. it that way. So hmm. Paul seems to describe the risen Christ as made up of pneuma, and mm-hmm. as I understand it, in the ancient world, and in, in sort of first century Judaism and, and sort of maybe even Greek thought, um, or Roman thought, I, I could be wrong about that, but Numa was like understood to be this kind of divine substance. It's the kind of thing we don't really believe in anymore. Um, it's this additional substance that like angels might be made out of, but mm-hmm. not people. Mm-hmm. Right. And so Jesus has a body made up of like angel stuff or like odd stuff. Right. Right. So the point of that is, I, I don't know what to make of that exactly, except to say, that's not the same thing as saying that Jesus of Nazareth's heart started beating again and whatever cellular decay had been going on was reversed. And, you know, like it, the atrophying muscles de-atrophied. I don't, you know, a revivified corpse understanding. I mean, this is all very in the weeds stuff that scholars will debate. My whole thing is just there are multiple ways of understanding that. I don't know which one is true. And I will die not knowing which one is true. Dan and I are just a few of the millions of people who have come to a time in their lives when the Christianity they grew up with or have been influenced by for years, maybe even decades, has evolved. Over the past year, I've had the opportunity to speak to a few of them. After the break, we'll hear some of their stories. One of my favorite episodes this season was episode four, Who's Dis? It's the one where I try to get to the bottom of the question, which classic diss rap is better? Tupac's Hit Em Up or Ice Cube's No Vaseline? One of the people I interviewed for that episode was the filmmaker Isaac Dietz. Over the years, Isaac has grown a significant following of aspiring filmmakers due to his amazing work. A big part of his work has been shooting the music videos as some of the biggest Christian rap and hip-hop artists on the planet, like Grammy Award-winning artist Lecrae. Uh, I was made in America, land of the free, home of the brave. And right up under your nose, you might see a sex slave being traded. 
is one of the most studied filmmakers on a wide variety of topics, who is raised in a Christian household, it's no surprise that Isaac knows a lot about Christianity and its history. So it goes without saying, he also grew a relatively large following of Christian artists specifically. So imagine their surprise when he wrote this tweet last September. Quote, I need to say this out loud. I no longer identify as a Christian. Unquote. This was a guy who started a Christian filmmaking cohort program in Atlanta, where Christian filmmakers lived in a house together, collaborated on projects, and had study groups and Bible studies. Needless to say, this tweet caused quite the stir, but it was the culmination of a personal journey that he had been on for three or four years. When I read this tweet, I just knew I had to interview him about it. And as is often the case when it comes to this topic, the statement in his tweet didn't necessarily mean what you might think it means. There was that moment that um, King Solomon had with God where uh, he prayed for wisdom and then um, there was that moment. And I remember when I heard that story, my mom would read me uh, like, the Bible every day for school. I remember hearing that moment and I remember praying for that. And I felt like very much and still do feel like that came. Um, and how, how old were you at that moment? I felt like there was a, a range between like eight and 11 or something like that. And so I started reading the Bible uh, from cover to cover when I was about 13 years old. I finished it when I was 17 because I was like, well, if I if I'm a Boy Scout, I'm going to read the Boy Scout manual. If I'm going to claim to be a Christian, then I'm going to also uh, read the book that this is based on. And uh, funny enough, 90% of Christians haven't read the Bible. So I read it's actually the Bible. not funny. I mean, it's funny, but uh, right. It's kind of so. sad, right? Yeah. So for me, I really um, read the Bible and just been uh, just studying it and asking questions and stuff. And a lot of times for me, when I started bringing up certain questions, people within the church would be like, resistant to the questions or being like, Hey, like, let's not ask that. Like, I remember it was like 2003 or something like that. I was at youth group and this is like maybe seven years after Ellen got fired for being a lesbian. It's hard to remember like 2005 wasn't too long ago. And, and this is before social media, before YouTube, before all that. And I remember always like asking questions of like, you know, okay, I could explain to you why murder is wrong without using the Bible. Uh, can I explain to you why homosexuality is wrong without using the Bible? Because that would help, you know, make a certain case for, you know, that if this is what we believe and um, nobody even allowed that question. Cause I was like, I don't feel like it's wrong in the way that I'm being told that it's wrong. And, and I just had all those questions, but a lot of people would like to kind of shoo it away. And then what I ended up doing is I started a discussion group in my attic and I just invited anyone that I knew that wanted to come and just, all you do is write down on a piece of paper, like, uh, you know, uh, anonymously, most of the time, like what topics you want to discuss, you put it inside the box. And then we just pull randomly and just say, okay, what's, uh, let's talk about the Christian perspective on masturbation or streaking or homosexuality or, and just like asking a lot of really kind of hard questions that like, aren't sometimes a lot of them aren't specifically in the Bible. So it's like, well, how do we reconcile this? Like, you know, I've always been super curious. I don't think I've ever lost that. I still haven't. I feel like for me, I'm obsessed with 
uh, like having a relationship with reality. And I think you could do that through truth. And I think that the only way to reality is through truth. And I think that Jesus re represents a very uh, analogous, but not exclusive, like, you know, I'm not saying that thing fully, but I'm saying the analogy of you cannot get to the, the father without the son, you can't get to reality without truth. And when you live in a false reality, you are in a hell and uh, in a 12 step program, people that get out of that hell are stepping out of denial. And so like the only way to get out, any kind of healing, any kind of uh, thing is actually stepping in and having a relationship with truth. And I think that that's what Jesus accurately represents. I don't usually identify with, with the term deconstruction, but I guess that's the easiest way to describe it is the deconstruction is about three years ago, I was really curious of like specifically what Jesus said. So I copied and pasted the gospels and then I just like read only Jesus. And then I started organizing a PDF of everything Jesus said and organizing like things that he commanded to the whole church, mm. things that he commanded to the individual that he's talking to things that uh, parables and just organizing it in that way. And really just like bathing in what he said. And one of the things that started a lot of the seeds of the questions that I've been asking is he seemed very opposite of religion and, and against religion in a lot of ways. Like, hmm. you know, don't do long, lengthy prayers. Don't uh, wear your robes to be seen by men. Don't, uh, you know, be on the street corners praying and all the things that Christianity has become. He <laughs> seems like he's against. And right. so I had a, a, like a hypothesis, a question in my head of, is modern Christianity the, the false prophecy that Jesus warned us against? Hmm. And then I started asking some other questions. One of them was, wh what is the, well, first off, what's the word of God? The word of God, biblically speaking, is not the Bible. And hmm. that changed a lot for me because in Greek, it's the logos. So the logos of, of God, the logic of God, how the universe is tied together and the logic he used to, to create everything it's not the word of God. So actually when a pastor stands up and holds up a Bible and says, this is the word of God, it's actually unbiblical to say that because that's not accurate. And I'm sure there's people that will disagree with that. Yeah. But I'm willing. What, to... what do you mean when you say it's not the word of God? Like break so, it down. Well, biblically speaking, every time it mentions the word of God, it's not mm. referring to 66 books is so like, for example, like when it says in John one, like in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and all that stuff, the word, it's not talking about the Bible. And so like the logos of God is the fingerprint of God, how things work. And if you look at everything, everything has fractals from trees to our veins, to our brains, to our neurons, to our universe, that is the code. And with that code, that's very much the code of the kingdom of God. And a lot of times what people are is they're afraid of the unknown. So when you step into an unknown, right. yep. they get persecuted. So like Jesus says, if you follow me, you're going to get persecuted for following. So you have like right. Galileo and all these people that were persecuted, not just by the church, but actually by the scientific community. And if you look at what Jesus says, he said, you make monuments for the prophets that your fathers killed. And if you think about like Medgar Evers, Martin Luther King, Abraham Lincoln, all of those people like society killed. And now we're celebrating them. Like it's, it right. was our, their, our, totally. our idea. Like right. Martin Luther King, Martin Luther King died at a 70% disapproval rating. Yeah. And a lot of people don't know, but he was, he was actually, public enemy number one. It right. kills me now when you see all these evangelical oh, totally. Republicans praising totally. him and loving yeah. the holiday and whatever. Exactly. Like. But that persecution, actually, if you look at it right. properly, 
is something that's going to grow you and, and make you stronger to be able to fight the people that are truly against yeah. you. Malcolm X wasn't truly against Martin Luther King. Right, right. But I think what it did is all that, like getting the blows from Martin Luther King or Malcolm X uh, really helped him prepare yeah. for the people that were truly opposed yeah. to what he was doing. Basically, there is a certain amount of questions where it's like, okay, I don't, I don't think the canonization of the Bible is accurate. So then you do that with so many different things. And then you get to a certain point after three years where it's like, okay, I don't know if I, I'm like rolling with this in the sense of, yeah. like, I'd rather uh, pursue truth with no expectations and no rules. This is where Christians start getting pretty uncomfortable with when I talk about this is because what we've turned it into is you're, you're worshiping the Father, Son, and the Holy Bible. Like the Holy Bible is up there with the Trinity as far as something you can't critique the origins of it. And it's like right. the, the, the canonization of the Bible came out like 300 or 600 years after Jesus. Same with the church. That's Jesus right. says to the Samaritan woman, you know, when all this is finished, you're going to be able to worship God in the mountains. You know, you won't need to go to the temple. You could worship God anywhere. And what, what happened is once he died and then over time, we just slowly brought the church back. We slowly brought this temple back and it came out of a lot of pagan rituals. There's uh, like... Which isn't doesn't mean it's exclusively wrong, you know, like there's great things that have come from bad things, you know, but like the idea of like stained glass windows and the, the architecture of a church and stuff like that has come from pagan temples. My favorite chapter is John 9 and it still is. And I even have a tattoo, John 9, 43, when Jesus essentially says, uh, well, he says, uh, you're blind because you claim to have sight to the Pharisees, mm. you know. I don't know if he's the son of God or not. All I know is I used to be blind and now I see. And mm. I think that that is kind of where I'm at is I don't know all the labels. I don't know all the names of everything, but I do know what has given me sight. I know what things have, I've, I'm over three years with no porn, which was a big step for me. And that like, I feel like was, you know, going into sight and like stepping out of the darkness. And like, so I, I could look at my life with the fruits and judge my tree by the fruits. And I, I, I am very proud of the fruits that are coming out of me because of all the life changes that come from following truth, even in the midst of persecution of like being in the room in 2003 where every Christian thinks homosexuals are going to hell. And I'm going, hey, I don't know. Mm. I'm not sure on that. And yeah. like, that, that, that's a hard room to be in. From Religion News Service, this is Saved by the City, a podcast from two single Christian women making our way in New York without losing our shirts. Souls. <laughs> Souls. I'm Roxy Stone. And I'm Caitlin Beatty. But you two have the distinction of being the two first white women in interviewed for my podcast. <laughs> okay, well, <laughs> that is a distinction. Those were the voices of Roxy Stone and Caitlin Beatty. After hearing them interviewed on Dan's show, I got them to come on mine. I felt so bad after making that joke. I'm sure they were thinking, what the hell have we gotten ourselves into? Nonetheless, we ran with it, and in no time, we were in a groove. In a lot of ways, their podcast is very similar to mine. They share personal stories about what it's like moving from a small town to a big city, their dating lives, 
their personal journeys of faith and how those journeys have affected themselves and their family. Why did you want to go to New York? My life had sort of fallen apart. Mm. Um, I was living in Orlando at the time, which is not where I'm from, but um, mm. I'd been there for Good old several Florida. years. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I'd been there for several years uh, right. working at a Christian magazine there, and I'd left the magazine and um, had recently gone through a divorce and it wasn't really home. Like I didn't mm. have family or anything there. Right. And a lot of my friends I'd made through work had started leaving as well. So I was just like, I could literally go anywhere. I'm mm. freelancing. I'm working from home. Yeah. Where is the place I've always wanted to be? And yeah. that answer was very obvious. It was yeah. New York City. So yeah. like a lot of people, I, I came to New York looking for a fresh start. Yeah. Yeah. How about you, Kayla? I needed to get out of the Christian bubble mm. because I had been in a Midwestern, mostly white evangelical Christian bubble mm -hmm. my entire adult life. Mm. And like Roxy had some flexibility in terms of where I could live. It helped right. that I knew some people in New York and I had mm -hmm. visited many times and it didn't feel so overwhelming. It was kind right. of like a fun adventure that I knew was going to change me in some way. And I kind of wanted to see how. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I moved here um, coming up on four years ago. And it has been better and harder, I would mm. say, mm. than I expected. When you say bubble, what do you mean by that? So I also worked at a Christian magazine <laughs> yeah. in the Chicago suburbs for yeah. about a decade. And the suburb where I lived, I realized kind of early on, and it was just reinforced over and over I don't know any people who aren't Christians. Yeah. Like everybody I run into, everybody I work with, all of my friends, mm -hmm. everybody who lives in my apartment building, we are all Christians. <laughs> the yeah. homogeneity yeah. felt wrong to me. Like, yeah. I don't think this is how we're supposed to live. You yeah. know, I think, totally. I think yeah. to have an enriching human and faith experience, we are supposed to be in relationship with people who are very different from us. Right, mm -hmm. right. It just felt safe in a stifling way. I think, mm -hmm. I, I think I, I thought, you know, I could stay here and it would be a fine, it would be fine. Good, you know, yep. good things could happen, but yeah. I want to grow and be stretched and challenged. And I don't think that's going to happen here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. For each of you, how has your faith changed? I know one of the episodes in your show is like, why you're still a Christian. I think those episodes are a while ago. So I can almost ask you that. Why not? Are you, would you, would you two still consider yourself Christian? And if so, why? If you feel comfortable sharing, like I don't want you to like to do any kind of massive reveal on some strangers <laughs> podcast you've never been on before, but. <laughs> or, <laughs> this is what we'll pu pull the bandaid off. I am <laughs> right, still a Christian. Yeah. I am planning to go to a Good Friday service tonight mm -hmm. and then the Easter vigil tomorrow night and mm -hmm. maybe Easter morning. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we will see. Good. In the Episcopal Church, I go You're to just going to do the sad ones? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I'll just, I, I just want to do the sad ones. No, no, the Easter vigil is happy. It's true. Yeah. Eventually. So, yeah, I, I think the claims of the Christian story and of the person of Christ are still very compelling to me. I can't deny kind of moments in my life where mm -hmm. faith has felt very real. God has felt very real. I look to people who I, I know and see like a integrity or a, a re realness to their faith that is mm -hmm. compelling. I certainly approach faith in a 
way that's different from mm-hmm. how I approached faith 10 or 15 years ago. And obviously that's a big theme of the mm-hmm. Save by the City podcast is kind right. of, we were given this childhood faith. It means a lot to us, but we also recognize that our faith has changed and grown and just gone in maybe a different trajectory than our 12 year old selves would have anticipated. Right, right. And how do we continue to integrate a sense, uh, an, a faith identity with kind of modern questions mm-hmm. and challenges and also serious credibility issue with the fa- white evangelical faith that we grew up in? <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. How do we grapple with that, that, you know, this faith community that really fostered our identity early on is like on the verge, if not has entirely collapsed. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And how that's so personally disappointing and, and frustrating, but yes, at the end of the day, yes, I am definitely still a Christian. Yeah. How about you, Rexy? Yeah. I mean, similarly, um, I will also be going to a good Friday service tonight. Mm-hmm. Um, I will also go to an Easter Sunday service. I'm going to go to a Broadway show for Easter vigil. Um, but everything Caitlin said, mm-hmm. very similar. There are days I ask myself, am I still a Christian? Mm-hmm. Like, and I think many times, like, I don't totally know how to answer that, Right. but I know I go to church every Sunday and mm-hmm. I know that the community has kept me part of that because I have found a community of Christians that I feel like I'm on the same page with. And a group of people who I think is really facing that reckoning. My church is probably full of people mm-hmm. who would say they have church wounds and yeah. are trying to stay. I'm happy to journey with those people. I think I'm in the right space. There are ways that I'm trying to figure out what is true about Christianity that isn't yeah. the white evangelical story that I grew up with that mm-hmm. I think all of us on this podcast are challenging and are deconstructing um, Mm -hmm. and decolonizing and all of the D's, which is really disorienting and hurts a lot. And I think that, that even though I'm still claiming Christ and I'm still claiming Christianity, Mm -hmm. I'm looking, trying to look to different voices to understand what that means that aren't Mm -hmm. white evangelical men, mostly (laughs) hoping to find a faith that feels less poisonous Mm -hmm. and that I can't hang a lot of the world's ills on, which is kind of the truth of where white Christianity has landed us. So a couple of times now you both have mentioned, made reference to like white evangelicals, white Christianity. How has that impacted you? And like, what have you learned from believers who aren't white? A lot. (laughs) Tell me Um, about that. I mean, that's almost all I'm reading right Mm. now um, Mm -hmm. for the last few years. You know, I'm in the middle of reading This Here Flesh by Cole Arthur Riley. I think really learning who Jesus is from a different Mm -hmm. perspective. And it's hurt a lot to realize the ways that a faith that I grew up loving and being a part of has caused so much harm in the world. And I think trying to like uncover Jesus from that and uncover the beauty of the Christian story from that has required stepping outside of the mm-hmm. white evangelical mm-hmm. lens and listening to voices outside of that who love Jesus, you know, mm-hmm. and have found a message in Christianity that resonates. And that includes LGBTQ voices as well. There are a lot of LGBTQ people at my church, and that's been also been very mm-hmm. rewarding for me. Yeah. I think part of the the journey has been just recognizing that 
we grew up with a white lens, <laughs> yeah. I would say yeah. the kind of faith that was presented to me growing up and even into early adulthood was not aware of its own mm-hmm. racial, economic, mm-hmm. um, political baggage. Mm-hmm. It was like, no, this is this is the pure faith. Right. This is just the gospel. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then coming to terms with the fact that at least the structures of Christendom in the West have been built on the foundations of colonization, of mm-hmm. conquest, of domination, of stamp, of, of human degradation. You know, mm-hmm. just even r- grappling with the white church's response to uh, the civil rights movement, like not that long mm-hmm. ago, and the right. white church's response to <laughs> things going on right now. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. just recognizing that there is no pure. Christian faith, you know, like right. faith is always mediated through a culture and uh, social structures and seeking to disentangle like a, a message of Christ from the white American baggage that it was presented to us in for a yeah. real, for a really long time. I gotta say, I have to give it up to Roxy and Caitlin to accept a podcast invite from a stranger on a show they know is part of the Ebony Podcast Network. But I felt like their stories and voices were important because it shows the extent to which this wave of evolution in the church is growing. So that even two people with backgrounds like theirs can undergo such a profound change. A change that, by all accounts, they are still going through. When we get back from the break, we'll meet a person from my past who uniquely represents two key parts of my personal journey. Don't go away. If you visit the blog post for this episode, a link to which is in the show notes, you'll see a photo from my fifth grade class. In that photo, there is an arrow pointing to me and standing right next to me is this girl in a little pink dress. And yes, I did have a crush on her. There's a chapter in my book where I talk about the effect TV shows and movies had on the kinds of girls I liked in my childhood. And in telling part of that story, I talked about this little girl. Her name was Caitlin. Now, in the process of telling that part of the story in my book, I looked her up on Facebook just to make sure it would be okay to use her full name. And as it turns out, Caitlin is now a Lutheran pastor. And it's important as we think about faith and wonder about faith, you're going to hear me talk about this in my sermon today. And when we sing our our hymn after the sermon, the song, it's called Ask the Complicated Questions. It's been a couple of years since I first reached out to her, and I felt who better to have on this particular podcast. This is such a weird thing for me, because as I wrote, not weird, but it's interesting because like in one person, you represent like two aspects of like this journey that I that I talk about in my book, I talk about the podcast mm-hmm. because I had a crush on you in the fifth grade, way back when. So you're mm-hmm. like you were one of the little white girls that had a crush on. And mm-hmm. two, now as a pastor, you have like this really cool outlook on Christianity and whatnot, which brings up this conversation I want to talk about with you today, which is this deconstruction journey that I've been on since 2016, right? Mm-hmm. Where I'm at this point in my life, uh, Caitlin, where Technically, I think I'm still a Christian, but I'm like right on the precipice where I'm not even sure 
I may be like crossing over to where like I don't know if I could still call myself that. Mm. And one of the things I wanted to get from you, you know, just from like some of the readings that I've read of, you know, the work that you've done is your your insights on that and like like what kind of you know advice you would give to someone who's in this part of the journey well let me just can i just ask you this what do you mean by um i like being being a christian like you qualify what does that mean just help me out and then and then i'll launch into my no, no, my short abbreviated no, how this I, happened that's a good question so in my mind from the technical aspect is like i haven't completely abandoned a belief in the deity of Jesus Christ. Got it. But honestly, if I'm being honest with myself, I'm questioning that now. And I think that's one of the th journeys that I'm on is like, am I ready to stick? Because there's a lots of things about the Bible that I no longer believe in the way that I used to believe them. Right. Yeah. And that kind of thing. So that's what I mean. Okay. If that helps. All right, that's, that's helpful. So here's the abbrevi abbreviated story. I was baptized through the Roman Catholic Church. Most of my extended family on my mother's side was Roman Catholic. Caitlin goes on to explain how she moved from the Roman Catholic Church to going to a strict fundamentalist reformed church where, ironically, women weren't even allowed to speak in the sanctuary. Well, I mean, they couldn't like pray out loud or we could sing. Okay. Because um, we could <laughs> harmonize, and it was all a cappella. Musical instruments were verboten. Yeah. So anyway, wow. Jesus became a, a super scary figure in that tradition. Mm. There was no way to make Jesus happy. Mm -hmm. And everybody I knew was going to hell. Right. And, uh, and so when I left home, I left Jesus behind him. I can't make the guy happy anyway. I'm not going to take him to my party. And I mean that loosely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And then I was out of church for quite a while. I had kind of dabbled with um, the Baha'i faith. I had a friend who was Baha'i. And then I panicked. I'm like, I am not a Baha'i as mm. much as I admire my Baha'i friends. But anyway, so I was out of church for a decade. In the meantime, I met my husband. We had some babies. Mm -hmm. And my mother-in-law said, are you going to baptize those babies? Hmm. And I was like... Hmm. So I looked at my husband and I said, you seem relatively untraumatized as a Lutheran. Maybe we should just <laughs> do it this way. You know, right. I mean, I, I remember loving the little old ladies at church and I would love my children to have little old ladies who love them. Right. And so we did. We started going to a Lutheran church and I, I was really uh, blown away. I, my mm. pastor was very supportive of all my millions of questions after that real mm -hmm. hybrid upbringing and i just started understanding like oh the biblical jesus is really about grace hmm. the biblical jesus like puts us all on a flat line and says all of you are incomplete whatever that means all mm -hmm. you humans right and all of you are in need of grace and no one can do this on their own and the unconditionality of that more what i describe now as there's nothing you can do or not do to make god love you any more any less mm -hmm. that's kind of my the way i say it and that was really new to me. So anyway, I became a Lutheran. Hmm. And not too long after that, I, you know, I was a pediatric oncology nurse and loved that mm -hmm. and had a chance to preach um, at my parish, at my little local congregation. And then my, my congregation said, you need to go, you need to go to seminary. And my kids wow. were little and like, no, I don't need to go to seminary. You're mm -hmm. nuts. And then a few years later, I thought, yeah, I am supposed to go to seminary. Mm -hmm. It felt like a secret for several mm -hmm. months. And I finally went to my husband and said, I think I'm supposed to be a pastor. Wow. And he said, well, of course you are. Wow. So your husband was very supportive from the beginning. He was. 
My husband jokes with me. I'm like, I either go zero miles an hour or 80. <laughs> right. It's funny you said 80 because that doesn't strike me as particularly fast. <laughs> I, I, I Maybe that's his way of saying I'm not entirely reckless. <laughs> right. Well, well, let me ask you, like if someone asked you, what does it mean to be a Christian? Like, what would you say? This is my answer, but it also happens to be a very Lutheran Christian answer. Mm, sure. I would say in the most fundamental terms, it's one who is baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Got it. For me, it means being claimed by this insane story of mm -hmm. God being in the person of Jesus. Mm -hmm. And then really kind of marinating in that story and, mm -hmm. and wondering, like, is it real? I think certainty mm -hmm. is a sin. Mm-hmm. If I was, could, could be so bold. I think faith is really shaky. And I think if we're not careful, we make faith a work. Meaning that my faith is only real if it looks like what you say is real. Because mm. there are so many people out there who want to say, this is what orthodoxy is, or this is what mm -hmm. right teaching is. And you have to buy into all these things. But I think we make an idol out of the Bible when we create like a checklist. As if faith is sort of like this accomplishment, like another ladder. Right. That we're supposed to do. In that last part of the clip, Caitlin talks about certainty being a sin. And that is by far one of the biggest issues so many of us who are deconstructing have with many who are still in the church. This almost prideful and boastful level of certainty about their interpretation of the Bible. Ignoring the fact that there are literally over a hundred translations and hundreds of different denominations. So not only is Christianity different from every other religion in significant ways, within Christianity, you have a wide range of beliefs. Even celebrated Christian author and speaker Don Miller, who wrote the wildly popular book Blue Like Jazz, which was later made into one of the few Christian-themed movies that actually are good, in my opinion, shared this on his Facebook thread. The other thing that I can't get with in almost any church in the country is the certainty the certainty that the Bible is inerrant, the certainty that the earth was created in seven days, the certainty that it wasn't, the certainty that, you know, all this certainty, to me, screams of a, a lack of respect for the truth. And the truth is, we don't know. We, I, I pray to Jesus, do I know that the Bible's inerrant? I don't know. It might be, but there's almost zero churches, in America at least, that would stand up and say, hey, hey here's what I think the Bible is saying, and here's, it could be this, it could be this, it could be this, but we don't know. That doesn't sell. It's very hard to get a tribe together around we don't know. Instead, we make incredibly concrete theological statements and we sign them, and you are either for them or against them. That... I don't keep. As I move forward in faith, I let I have let go of the uncertainty. But the truth of the matter is, even the disciples struggled with doubt and uncertainty. The week after Easter, Caitlin preached a sermon on Thomas. Mary's morning encounter and the disciples' evening meeting with the risen Christ was that first Easter Sunday. Thomas had to wait a whole week until the next Sunday before his moment with the resurrected, wounded Jesus. That must have been a rough week. 
His friends crowing with confidence, claimed by a story that didn't yet include him. And it makes me wonder what story claimed him that week. Was it fear? Was it doubt? Was it hope? Was it all of the above? It makes me wonder also what stories claim us by faith or non-faith. Was it fear? Was it doubt? Was it hope? Was it capitalism? Was it celebrityism? All of the above? So doubt is real. Deconstruction is real. And if, like me, you're on such a journey, that's okay. Have you seen him? The one I love. You know, I started writing the script for this particular episode back on Easter Sunday. And when I got to this song that you're hearing now, I just let myself go and be washed in its beauty. I allowed myself to give in to how the music was making me feel, and tears actually started to come to my eyes. For the first time in a long while, I felt like I was in God's presence. I shared that experience with Dan. I was picking music to use in the episode, and there was this one song I came across. It was a spiritual song, and uh, it was moving me. And I've gotten to this place where if I start to feel moved, I'm just going to let myself feel moved. And so I did something that I rarely have really done. Like I, I kind of took a physical stand that I would sometimes do at church, like raising my hands to standing at my desk, right? And there was a, part, there was a cynical side of me, so like, Ron, what are you doing? But there was another side of me, so like, you know what? This is how I'm feeling. I'm not going to fight it. It feels beautiful. I love the music I'm listening to now. I feel like it's, you know, calling me, and I'm just going to accept it. And there are times where I'll hear a song and I'll let that and I'll let that happen. And like, so for me, church for me this past Sunday was telling my story and editing a podcast about my story and and listening to songs used in the episode and being moved by this one song and letting it wash over me. I, I hesitate to use the word triggered, but there are times when I see worship services at churches like that and I viscerally feel something. Like, I have a somatic experience. Part of it is anger, part of it is frustration, and, and part of it is sadness because for so many years, those were real experiences for me, like where I felt I had an encounter with the divine. And, you know, maybe it was just the music and the chord progressions, who knows, but maybe, or, or both. Like, I've said, like, you know, maybe God uses music and chord progressions 
in order to experience him because that's or it or whatever you want to call him because that's the best way to do it like maybe that is how he has created the human being to experience him is a response to music and chord progressions because that's the best way i mean protestants can be really worried about that kind of thing about any sort of art or aesthetics being involved you know they can worry that it's we can worry that it's idolatry but if you step back from that extreme position mm -hmm. and you said look here is a beautiful painting mm -hmm. of jesus you know healing the blind man right and you say well are you having a spiritual experience or is that just oil paint and canvas right like right. that'd be a silly thing to say yeah yeah. So why would we say that about music yeah. and shared, you know, collective effervescence as Emil Durkheim, the sociologist mm -hmm. called it, right? Like we get together, we have this at rock concerts, we have it at parades, we have it big celebratory moments uh, and we have it at church. And all the talk about how grand and amazing and unimaginable God truly is, maybe, just maybe, he designed a way for us to connect with him, for her or they, in a way he knew our puny minds could. At the end of the day, if something brings you peace, joy, happiness, and allows you to love other people, does it matter if it's a spiritual experience or just a biochemical one? You may have noticed that all the guests I've had on this episode are white. All of the pain and spiritual trauma I've had these past six years have been at the hands of white Christians. In a few cases, as it related to my divorce, it was from people who meant well. But the overwhelming number have been from people who were at best racially insensitive, and in some cases, like the friend of mine who literally threatened to tear gas me if he ever saw me at a Portland uprising, were just downright racist assholes. Even though this show is about me reconnecting with the black community, I don't want to lose all hope in people who aren't black. It has been helpful for me to see that just like black people, not all white people are a monolith. It was therapeutic even for me to hear their stories, admit to the problems that they see among their tribe, and offer advice for people like me on deconstructing journeys. Well, my favorite piece of advice is something I'm taking from a guy named Mark Karras. Hmm. He's a psychologist in California. I mean, he, he wrote a book called, I think it's called Religious Refugees. Hmm. Um, and like one of his, yeah, one of his pieces is to find what he calls an unholy huddle, hmm. by which he just means like one or more people that you can be totally honest with hmm. as you process and work through this stuff. Hmm. And especially if there is trauma involved of any kind, Mm-hmm. You know, uh, we know from most treatment of trauma that uh, not not every single one, but most modalities will involve processing that out mm -hmm. multiple times until you've gotten it out of your system, kind of like getting a knot out in a massage. Right. And it hurts 
but if you get it out, you have less overall pain mm -hmm. in that region, right? And so you can't do that with people who are still in the old paradigm, especially if the old paradigm is highly structured, a lot of certainty, um, you know, that kind of a thing, quite conservative, basically. It, it's easier to find those, those type of people among non-believers or people who are also going through or have gone through a similar kind of deconstruction thing where they just don't have any skin in the game. Right. They are just there as your friend to help you process. So that's the first thing. The second is that my friend Sari and I actually, we made a website called SoYou'reDeconstructing.com and it's got tons of resources, resources about different kinds of faith communities, spiritual practices, therapy, and then almost every topic that comes up for people on that journey. There are, you know, 10 to 20 resources per topic organized by how difficult they are to engage with, like kind of how academic mm -hmm. uh, from least to most. And then um, there's also a testimonials page about just like, here's what you might expect to happen. Here's what other people have gone through. Roxy and Caitlin each had some insightful advice as well. So yeah, cynicism is something that feels like a casualty of work as a religion journalist, for me anyway, mm -hmm. like, you know, seeing images of people worshiping with their hands raised, of course, part of my mind is like, oh, <laughs> that's how I feel. And then another mm -hmm. part of me is like, how dare you yeah. judge an authentic mm. human experience? Like, mm. we don't go around saying like, music is just manipulative because of those chord changes like right. music community <laughs> worship these are all like powerful human experiences yeah i think trying to the work of disentangling i don't know what that looks like i think mm. at the very least like finding other people who are trying to do that work carefully mm. that is not mindless but is also not despairing yeah. that has been helpful to me yeah i like that yeah I mean, I think your podcast probably offers that in some ways, mm. um, a community of people. You know, I think I had to go find a church that I wasn't triggered by, and that mm. took some effort. And I think yeah. uh, Caitlin and I both talked about, like, we started attending high church, litur liturgical churches, mm -hmm. in part out of that reason, like, mm. because yeah. worship triggered me sometimes, especially when it was like oceans type stuff. But I really think if there's any advice I can really offer is just don't do it alone. You know, find someone you can talk to that you trust to, you know, who you feel like you can be really honest with about this and who you feel like will, you know, journey with you. Or if it's a spiritual director, um, you know, I think I have a good friend who's uh, gay, who's found like a Catholic spiritual director who like outside of the evangelical tradition can help him connect yeah. in new ways that, like he hasn't been able to, you know, coming from an evangelical background. So I think it's really good that we're in a place that people are recognizing the sort of trauma and wounding and baggage that like religion can cause for people mm -hmm. um, because it is like such a foundational aspect of who we are, right. uh, especially if we're raised in a faith. And so I think there's growing amounts of resources and, mm -hmm. you know, therapists who are being trained in this kind of work. So I think we're in a, you know, a good moment to be able to find help um, yeah. as we're being honest with what our religious past has done. 
One of the things I love about Isaac is how deep he is. From all the reading he's done, the films he's studied, and the kinds of people he's had the honor to work with, the man has no shortage of deep thoughts. So like film has like their religion, which is the union. This is going to maybe offend people. I don't mean to. Blessed are those who don't get offended by <laughs> Careful, me, watch know? it. <laughs> <laughs> but the idea of like, these are the set of rules of how you, you know, only this person could touch a sandbag and this person is allowed into the Holy of Holies. Right. And, um, and you can't also, drive like, that actor to set. Only the teamsters can drive it. Right. Yeah. And then also the, uh, the idea of like, you're not a Christian if you do this, or you're not a Christian if you don't do this. And then same, you're not a filmmaker until you've shot on film or made a feature film or, you know, that we, I'm sure Ron and I have had that right. discussion many times. Nonsensical like, shit. A, I've been in arguments yeah, about it. Yeah. 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 Like who's a filmmaker, who's in, who's right. out, you know, all that stuff. And um, what the parallels really there of like, what are, a, what's a Pharisee, but somebody that thinks they know everything, you know, like Jesus says, like, uh, to them in John 9, you know, like he said, uh, they were saying, are you saying we're blind? And he's, that's where he says, like, you're blind because you claim to have sight. And they're the gatekeepers, the gatekeeper mentality of like, oh, you're not in, you're not in. Like, there is some new rap that's happening now that like old hip hop heads don't like. And they're, they're like, they're threatened by it. And of course, there's also like offshoots that it's like, okay, that genre is so far off from what the spirit of hip hop is. And this actually was the question that Ron asked a little bit ago too, is like, you know, what made you want to, you know, come out like that? Yeah. You know? For me, I got to an edge of exploration on my own. And I, I have questions that I couldn't, I need like peer review study. I always feel very like alive when I'm having conversations that challenge me. Like even in AOL Instant Messenger days, I just searched atheists uh, like groups and I'd get on an atheist chat rooms, <laughs> not to even evangelize, but just because I'm like, what is it like living your life thinking there's no God? You know, what is it like? And I, I just have always been curious of like the unknown and exploring the unknown. And it is scary and it is also a vulnerable place to be. Uh, like one of the things I learned recently about like uh, zebras is zebras camouflage within the herd where lions camouflage within the background. But a lion is looking for a specific individual zebra to attack and it doesn't attack until it finds the one. If you're in the middle of the herd, yes, you're safe, but you're also, you can't lead the herd. You can't. You, yeah. Who leads the herd of where they're going to go next, but the people on the outside, the prophets that your fathers are going to kill. What continues to bring me peace and solace on this journey I've been on is that I'm not alone. Not only am I not alone, I can turn to respected thought leaders and theologians who are way more knowledgeable and not only affirm my doubt and deconstruction, but admit to a similar one that they're on themselves. My old friend Caitlin said it beautifully in that sermon about Thomas she gave the week after Easter. Do we dare examine the stories that lay a claim on us. Week after week, Sunday to Sunday, we take baby steps on a life journey that often includes questions about faith. 12th century thinker Anselm of Canterbury called this faith-seeking understanding. I think it's better to pray, pray.
deconstruction and reconstruction are not once and done, but a daily process, daily dying and rising in the promises of our baptisms, trusting that God's promises are bigger than any of our questions and bigger than any of our struggles. People of great faith are so inspiring. We can call to mind some of these folks in our own lives. Like the early adopters in the faith, Mary Magdalene, Peter, the other disciples, and yes, even Thomas, we have people among us who are convinced of the resurrection beyond a shadow of a doubt. Most of us though, we don't fall neatly into either full faith or no faith. That is a false choice. Most of us are on a continuum, sometimes depending on the time of day. For something as big and mysterious as the resurrection, it's a good thing that the Easter season is 50 days. We need lots of time to swim in the mystery, struggle with what it means to trust God, even if the resurrection story feels like one step too far past the crucifixion and the tomb. I'm probably going to need more than 50 days to get to the answers to the big questions I have. Honestly, I doubt I'll get definitive answers in 50 years, but I will push through and push on, continuing to seek and search for meaning and truth, loving as best I can along the way, while still speaking truth to power. And to Chris and Tracy, whose wedding I refused to shoot all those years ago, I'm sorry I chose to not capture your special day. I pray and hope you still have a beautiful life and marriage together. And should you ever want to shoot a 25th anniversary video, hit me up. I owe you one. Better to pray, pray. Who told you? The Dungeons & Directs podcast is a production of Blade Runner Media and Bonnie and Clyde Productions and is part of the Ebony Covering Black America podcast network. This episode was written, produced, and edited by Ron Dawson. That's me. Special thanks to my Black BFFs and podcast peeps, JD and Yolanda Cochran. No relation to Johnny. JD creates and edits our social media audiograms. A huge thanks to Dan Koch, Roxy Stone, and Caitlin Betty. I'll have links to their respective podcasts in the show notes, as well as Dan's website, SoYou'reDeconstructing.com. Also, many thanks to Caitlin Trussell. I'll link to her full sermon in the show notes as well. And last but not least, thanks to Isaac Dietz for sharing his wisdom and experience. Who told you? I mean, who told you can't do it? Who told you not fly enough? Music used in the show is licensed from Artlist as well as Creative Commons songs from freemusicarchive.org. All the clips that we use are copyrighted to their respective parties and used for education, critique, commentary, or satire. Check our show notes for our statement on fair use. Never settle in life for the fake love, cause you gonna pay a pretty price from the paste up. I know a couple dudes. If you like the show, do all the podcasty things. 
rate, review, share with your friends and family. Let us know what you think about this particular episode, and I'd love to hear if you're on your own personal journey. True religion is literal, God in your genes. I always felt different and odd as I seen. I realized I'm gifted and God is the king. Created many things, put the stars in their place. Shoot us an email to podcast at dungeonsandurags.com. Or you can leave a voicemail message on our website at dungeonsandurags.com slash podcast. If you leave us a five-star review in Apple Podcasts, we just may share your thoughts and stories on the show. You can follow me on Twitter at Ron Dawson and on Instagram at Blurred Runner. I write about race, religion, creative arts, and business on Medium at rondawson.medium.com. You can follow JD on Twitter at thatjdcochran, and Yolanda is at rat in a wheel with all the words separated by underscores. That's it for now. Stay safe out there, and remember, having white privilege is not bad. Denying it is, and in the absence of biblical certainty, choose love. There is no design. There is, there is no a designer. And the God we served designed you. Hey folks, if you stay to the end, huge thanks. Just a reminder that you can pre-order my book, Dungeons and Durags, One Black Nerd's Comical Quest of Racial Identity and Self-Discovery. No, no, that's not the subtitle. One Black Nerd's Comical Quest of Racial Identity and Crisis of Faith. There will be a link to it uh, on the show notes. You can get it at Amazon. It's going to be officially released on May 17th. I can't wait for you to read it.